This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Eddie Bauer. It was a real person, a fishing guide actually. He started experimenting with down jackets back in 1936. There is nothing better than down insulation for, in terms of thermal efficiency. We still haven't found a way to make anything better in the world of apparel. This is Damian Wong, head of design and merchandising at Eddie Bauer. And here's the problem that Damian and his team have been trying to solve. Down may be the best insulator that we have, but it's not perfect. It's clusters of feathers. And if you put feathers inside a normal jacket, they just float around and clump up near the bottom, leaving, say, your shoulders cold. So for the last hundred years, in order to hold the feathers in place, jacket makers have been quilting the jacket, sewing rows of horizontal stitches into the insulation. It's the reason that every down jacket looks basically the same. You are putting what amounts to over 10,000 holes in a jacket that's meant to keep you warm. But now, for the first time, Damien and his team at Eddie Bauer have figured out how to eliminate the quilting problem. It's called thin down. And what it does is suspend the fibers in a kind of three-dimensional structure. Instead of free-floating clusters, the inside of the jacket looks like a sheet of cotton. You essentially get the ability to create a down jacket with no holes in it. And it turns out that 10,000 tiny holes make a huge difference. As they started testing it, the team found that the main problem with the jacket was that it was too warm. So we started out with uh, thick layers of thin down and ultimately went um, thinner and thinner and thinner to get to a comfortable layering weight. The result is the Evertherm down jacket. It packs down tiny, weighs nearly nothing, and looks like no other down jacket on the market. People expect to see a down jacket that is puffy and quilted. So we're still undergoing that process of trying to tell consumers what this is made of and what it can do uh, because it does break the paradigm they've, they've seen for a very long time. Go to eddiebauer.com slash evertherm to learn more. That's eddiebauer.com slash evertherm. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the science of survival. If you're listening to the show, there's a decent chance that you have a potentially deadly hobby. And I don't mean something crazy. Stuff like mountain biking, rock climbing, scuba diving. People die. They just do. And that means that the more you play outside, the greater the risk is that something's going to happen. There are always going to be things that catch you off guard. Like a badly pulled muscle or random ankle sprain. Rockfall. No one is completely immune. The best you can do is stay away from high-consequence sports like base jumping, downhill mountain biking, freediving. Mushroom foraging, however, is kind of in its own category. There's not much adrenaline, but it can be deadly. Best case scenario, you make an abnormally delicious sauce. Worst case scenario, you die. So it's a very dangerous activity, but it feels very safe. And a lot of people who'd never otherwise take a chance with their physical safety actually risk horrendous consequences in search of chanterelles and morels and all the other wild edibles out there. When we started looking into who these people are that get poisoned, we thought it would be people that don't know what they're doing and don't know the risks. But what we found is that while it's not very common, it really can happen to anyone. Novices, experts, professionals, amateurs, the only thing they all have in common is that they just don't think it's going to happen to them. You weren't looking for trouble when you left the house today. 
It's a warm autumn morning, and there's a fresh, earthly smell in the air from the previous night's rain. You have a meeting first thing, but wanted to get out on the trails behind your house for at least a few minutes before heading into the office. You're less than a mile in when you spot the mushrooms. Ooh. You almost miss the stubby white caps, partially hidden under the leaves of a young oak tree. Now that your eyes have adjusted to looking at the forest floor, you see there are more down here than you initially thought. You quickly fashion the raincoat tied around your waist into a sack and start hoarding your find. You're tempted to take them all, but you don't want to be greedy. You only take ten. Hiking back to your house, you think about what you'll make. An omelet for breakfast would be good. Oh, but you have time. Then you remember you're having guests for dinner tonight. A friend from the climbing gym and her new boyfriend. They'll appreciate a wild mushroom dish. Maybe you can make a risotto or your grandmother's mushroom soup. It doesn't cross your mind to double-check your mushroom guide. These look exactly the same as the meadow mushrooms you harvested nearby the week before. Back at home, you deposit them in a paper bag and head off to work, still basking in the glow of unexpected treasure. When you open up the bag in the evening, a faint smell of honey wafts out. This is going to be delicious, you think, and settle on the risotto. You sample a few bites of the mushrooms as they're sautéing in butter. They're meaty and slightly sweet. Soon enough, your friends arrive with a bottle of wine in hand. Hello. Hey, how's it going, guys? As you sit down to eat, you make a toast. To good friends. To good friends and good food and good health. After dinner, you sit around, drinking more wine and gossiping about the latest palace intrigue at the White House and that guy who always hangs out at the gym but never seems to climb. It's past 11 by the time your friends go home. Your face is flushed from the wine and your belly is full. You doze off, thinking about how lovely the evening was. There are several thousand species of mushroom in North America, but only a handful that will kill you. Most of those belong to the genus Ammonita, including the destroying angel, the fool's mushroom, and the evocatively named Deathcap. A single one of any of those contain enough amatoxin to kill an adult. Amatoxins are some of the deadliest natural poisons on Earth. Seven milligrams, one quarter of a grain of rice, is all it takes to kill an adult, compared to a full teaspoon of cyanide. As you fall asleep, the poison is already starting to take effect. Amatoxins bind to the enzyme that transcribes your DNA, rendering your cells incapable of reading the instruction manual that will keep them alive. The more toxin you ingest, the more cells it can kill. Dozens of people die each year from ammonita poisoning in Europe, where the death cap is native and mushroom foraging is more common than it is in the United States. 
It's becoming even more common because of immigrants foraging for food on their journeys across the continent. In 2015, more than 40 refugees were hospitalized in Germany after eating amatoxin-containing mushrooms. Death caps in Europe only grow symbiotically with oak trees, but in the U.S., they have evolved to grow with other trees, including pine. As a result, there have been reported ammonita poisonings in almost every region of the country, and the number is rising as the invasive death cap expands its range over time. Unlike most natural poisons, amatoxins don't announce their presence. The mushrooms containing them aren't brightly colored, and they don't taste bitter. This trait has made them an effective and popular murder weapon throughout the ages, from ancient Rome to the famous French serial killer Henri Girard, who took out insurance policies on his acquaintances before serving them poisonous mushrooms. Amatoxins are also an unusually hardy poison. They aren't destroyed by cooking, freezing, or drying. In 2001, a woman in Switzerland sautéed a bag of mushrooms that had been in her freezer for seven months. Four days later, she was dead. The toxins also don't affect everything equally. Every year, dogs die by the dozens from ammonita poisoning. But rats are almost totally immune. Women are more likely to suffer fatal consequences than men, and the young and very old are even more susceptible. In 2012, a nursing home attendant in California prepared a mushroom soup for the residents. Of the five who ate it, four of them died. But even though amatoxins are deadly to humans, that effect seems to be incidental to whatever evolutionary advantage they provide the mushroom. We are simply collateral damage. When you wake up at dawn, you feel a little queasy. Too much wine, you think. You manage to make it halfway through your coffee before the urge to vomit overtakes you. It's violent, like that time you had food poisoning after the state fair. You think back to the taco truck where you had lunch yesterday. But you don't have much time to reflect on the cause of your illness before the next wave of vomiting hits you. When you stop puking, you lean against the toilet, enjoying the feeling of cold porcelain against your hot skin. The tang of stomach acid lingers in your mouth. Then there's a rumble in your gut. You barely have time to transition from the floor to the toilet seat before the diarrhea explodes out of you. Unlike other less lethal mushroom poisons, amatoxins don't typically produce symptoms until 8 to 24 hours after ingestion. Scientists aren't exactly sure of the mechanism. But the vomiting and diarrhea you are currently experiencing is likely the result of massive cell die-offs as the poison moves along all 20-plus feet of your GI tract. Those damaged cells aren't able to absorb fluids, which is why you are now producing copious amounts of watery stool. For a brief interval after emptying your stomach and your bowels, you feel some relief and think, maybe I can make it to work. Instead, you crawl back into bed. 
From the small intestine, the amatoxin is absorbed into your bloodstream. It then travels to the liver, where it will slowly start to kill off your liver cells. But because of a cruel twist of biology, it will have the chance to mount this assault not once, but repeatedly. Once the toxin has worked its way through your liver and into your bile, it is re-injected into your intestine, where it's then reabsorbed into your bloodstream and once again deposited in your liver, causing even more cell death. The liver is designed to withstand serious abuse, but it has its limits. Oh God. You spend the morning making trips back and forth to the bathroom, getting weaker and weaker every time. You know you need to drink water, but it's a struggle to keep down even the smallest sips. By your sixth visit to the bathroom, you're crawling on your hands and knees, and it crosses your mind that maybe this is more than food poisoning. You think for a split second about the mushrooms, but quickly put the thought out of your mind. You wouldn't have made that mistake. By mid-afternoon, your blood pressure is low, 90 over 60, and dropping. You're starting to go into shock from the fluid loss of vomiting and diarrhea. Less fluid means less blood in your system, so your heart has to pump faster to get it out to your organs, and you feel a little lightheaded. You start to wonder whether you need to go to the hospital, but you're too weak to drive yourself, and you don't want to call an ambulance. Who calls an ambulance for a little diarrhea? You try watching TV, but it's hard to focus on the screen. When a colleague texts you after work to see how you're doing, you tell him you think you need to go to the hospital. You feel immensely relieved when he says he'll come get you. It's been almost 24 hours since you ate the mushrooms. Most of the amatoxin has already left your body. But like a hurricane, it will be days before the true magnitude of destruction becomes apparent. When you get to the emergency room, you Hi. tell the receptionist uh, you think you have food poisoning. food poisoning. You almost mention the mushrooms, but stop yourself. You're embarrassed by the idea, and your colleague is standing right there. The receptionist hands you a sheaf of paperwork and tells you to take a seat. Your heart is racing and a deep ache in your back is getting worse as your muscles, starved of fluid, start to cramp. It seems like forever before a nurse comes to get you. He takes your pulse and blood pressure and immediately starts you on a saline drip. By the time the doctor checks in on you an hour later, you're feeling much better. Your diarrhea has stopped and with the additional fluids, your heart rate has slowed and the muscle aches are gone you feel silly for having come to the hospital. You tell the doctor you think you just ate some bad tacos. She does a quick exam, pushing on your stomach and listening to your heart and lungs. She diagnoses you with gastroenteritis and says the nurse will bring you another bag of fluid to make sure you are fully rehydrated. You apologize to your colleague for ruining his evening and tell him you'll get a cab home. You've entered the honeymoon phase of amatoxin poisoning. The diarrhea and vomiting have subsided now that the toxin has passed out of your gastrointestinal system, but it's still circulating through your liver, killing it slowly. 
If you had told the doctor about the mushrooms, she could have tested for elevated levels of liver enzymes in your blood, an early sign of liver failure. But you'll know soon enough anyways. While liver failure normally takes months or years, with amatoxin poisoning, it can take as little as two days. You sleep until noon. It's been 36 hours since you ate the mushrooms. You feel tired and thirsty, but otherwise okay. Thank God it's a Saturday, you think. You can just stay in bed. You read and watch movies in between bouts of napping. A few times you feel like you might vomit, but you don't. You're exhausted, which you chalk up to the lingering effects of food poisoning. Around five, you check your phone and realize it's been on silent. In the last hour, you have missed three calls and a voicemail from the friend who was over for dinner. Hey, I need you to call me back right away. Alex and I are at the hospital because we both got super sick this morning. Uh, the doctor thinks it might be the mushrooms from the risotto the other night. I told him you know what you're doing, but he wants to see a sample. Anyway, call me back as soon as you get this. You don't call back. Instead, you put on your boots and jacket and walk very slowly back up the trail to the spot where you pick the mushrooms, stopping every couple hundred feet to catch your breath. You're starting to wonder if you've passed it when you see a cluster of mushrooms off to the left. Are these the ones? The caps are almost flat, and they aren't white. More of a yellow-green, but this is definitely the spot. The plants around them are broken from where you kneeled down. They must not have been fully developed when you picked them. You have a sinking suspicion you know what they are, but you open your mushroom app anyways and start to filter by characteristics. Yellow-green, three to four inches wide, convex cap with ring of tissue around the top of the stem. Pretty soon, there's only one mushroom on the list. It has a skull and crossbones next to its name. Anamita philodes, the death cap. You scroll to the section on edibility. It's a full paragraph, but your eyes fixate on the last line. Untreated death cap poisoning is almost always fatal. You feel a rising panic, but calm yourself by reasoning that there must be an antidote. There are antidotes to other poisons, like snake bites and cyanide, and mushrooms are far less dangerous than those. But there is no antidote for amatoxin poisoning. There is some evidence that an extract of milk thistle called salibinin, when administered intravenously, can help mitigate the damage of ammonitin. The theory is that by binding to the enzyme receptors that would be damaged by the poison, salibinin prevents the body from processing the ammonitin, and the toxin gets flushed out of your system. But it's still being tested in clinical trials, and results are mixed. Shoving one of the mushrooms into your pocket, you head back towards your house, praying silently that you make it. Along the way, you call your friend back. Hey, um, are you still at the hospital? You need to tell your doctor that they were... You hesitate, deciding whether to use the common name or the Latin name. You need to tell your doctor that they were death cabs. I made a mistake. Yeah, I'm headed there right now. It's going to be okay. You hope that's true. By now, almost 48 hours later, your liver is severely damaged. But even a severely damaged liver can keep you alive for quite a while. You get in the car and head for the hospital. At a stoplight, 
you catch a glimpse of yourself in the rearview mirror. The white of your eye has a faint yellow tinge. You've watched enough ER reruns to know that that is not a good sign. Jaundice, the yellowing of your skin and eyeballs, happens when your liver can't keep up with the task of filtering waste out of your bloodstream. The yellow is bilirubin, a byproduct of your body breaking down old red blood cells. Under normal circumstances, it is quickly flushed out of your system. But obviously, these are not normal circumstances. Back in the ER, you explained to the receptionist that you were in the previous night, but now you think you have mushroom poisoning. She takes one look at your yellow eyes and calls a nurse over. This time, there's no sitting around in the waiting room. You're immediately shown to a bed and hooked up to an IV. Hi, Dr. A doctor Schneider. comes and starts asking questions about your medical history while the nurse draws blood. And has this ever happened before? Have you ever had any stomach or liver problems? You take the mushroom out of your pocket and the doctor motions for you to place it on a metal tray. So how many did you eat? When he asks you how many you ate, you have to think a minute. Maybe three or four? You probably ate a full one while you were cooking, and then there would have been nine in the risotto. But you had seconds, and no one else did. So maybe five? The doctor is silent for a minute, typing notes into his tablet. When he looks up, you try to read his face, but it's hard to tell. He picks up the tray with the mushroom and says he's going to call a specialist while your blood test is processing. You try to call your friend again. Where are they? But it goes to voicemail. When the doctor comes back, you ask him what's happening with them. They're getting the best possible care, he says, before shifting to your lab results. He explains that the blood tests indicate your liver is severely damaged. They're going to need to admit you to the hospital. Is there anyone you want to be here with you? He says it like he's asking whether you want cream and sugar in your coffee, but you immediately grasp the implication. You almost laugh at the absurdity of it. Two days ago, you were planning dates on Tinder. Now you're going to die. The doctor's still talking, but you aren't listening. The next day passes in a blur of white coats. You call your parents and tell them you're in the hospital and it's serious. Your mom starts to cry. You cry too. You think about the fact that you haven't made a will and wonder what they'll do with all your things. At the same time, you keep hoping this is just a bad dream and you'll wake up. But you know it's not because you're just so tired and no one is ever tired in a dream. The nurses will only answer questions about your friends with vague statements. They're taking good care of them. The doctors here are excellent. You imagine what they'll say about you in the local paper. Then you're vomiting again, and the diarrhea is back. You're too weak to keep getting out of bed, so the nurses put you in a diaper. Your belly is swollen. Fluids are starting to leak into your abdominal cavity as your liver stops producing the proteins that keep liquid in your blood vessels. You sleep fitfully. You're not sure what time it is anymore, and things are starting to get foggy. As your liver shuts down, toxins build up in your brain. Hepatic encephalopathy, it's called. There are five stages. You're in the third one. The fifth is a coma. You keep asking about your friends, 
Are they okay? But you can't remember anymore what the doctor says. Blood tests show your liver enzymes are spiking. There's frantic activity around you, but the numbers just keep climbing. The blood vessels in your GI tract start to leak spontaneously because you're no longer producing sufficient quantities of the protein that makes your blood coagulate. You are vaguely aware of someone asking you questions, but you're too sleepy to answer. Then you're in an ambulance. You think, why can't they drive better? You never imagined that would be your final thought before you died. But then again, you never imagined it would be your own risotto that killed you. When you regain consciousness, you can barely move under the weight of the tubes and wires coming out of you. Not that you particularly want to. There is a throbbing pain radiating from the middle of your body. You can't see it underneath the blankets, but you have a massive incision running underneath your ribcage and up your sternum, where the doctors peeled open your body like the petals on a flower. It's dark outside, and you wonder what day it is and where you are. It's been just 96 hours since you ate the mushrooms, but everything has changed. You're about to learn that you have a new liver, that you will be taking anti-rejection drugs for the rest of your life. You'll have to come to terms with the fact that you took that liver from someone who had been waiting on the transplant list for years, because with mushroom poisonings, the transplant must be perfectly timed to avoid damaging the new liver. You must receive it after the toxins have left your body but before you're dead. Your doctors didn't think you would have survived even another few hours without it. You learn that while your friends recovered just fine after spending three days in the ICU, they don't have insurance, and they will be paying off crippling hospital bills for the rest of their lives. They'll reject your attempts to make amends, and you won't blame them. You have to tell your colleagues what happened, the word will leak out to the local media. You'll be called an idiot, and strangers will say that you deserve to die because you were stupid enough to eat mushrooms without positively identifying them. When you wake up sweating in the small hours of the morning, terrified and alone, you'll agree with them. It was a mistake, you'll think, before correcting yourself. No, it was a choice. It just happened to be the wrong one and you count yourself lucky that it's not the last one you'll ever make. Stephanie Joyce wrote, produced, and reported this piece. It was edited by me and Robbie Carver, who also composed all the music. It was narrated by Sam Mowry. Find more at voiceofsam.com. This piece was brought to you by Eddie Bauer and the new Evertherm jacket with thin down technology. It's a slick jacket. Like, I mean, physically, like, when you touch it, you're like, that is a slick well, jacket. Uh, it's interesting you, you, you mentioned that. The, the fabric is, is not that much different from fabrics you, uh, you would see in another jacket, but because there's no stitching, it feels much more uh, supple and soft and comfortable. So that was kind of a side benefit we didn't anticipate. 
Thanks to Andrea Mustaine and Ellie Hurdy for Scientific Review. Also thanks to Taylor Hughes, Jonah Ogles, Abe Streep, and Alex Ward. This season of The Science of Survival is brought to you by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, economic performance, and mushrooms. More at sloan.org. The Outside Podcast is a production of PRX and Outside Magazine.